Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see all of you, and happy early Thanksgiving. Uh, winter is officially upon us in L.A., which means it's going to be 83 degrees today. Um, so I don't even know what winter it is anymore. That was, we were actually, we were singing one of the songs, and it was talking about how, like, you know, death is, is gone and, like, you know, winter. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't remember... What is this thing called winter? And so, uh, yeah, we're continuing. Um, as we move into Thanksgiving and then we're approaching Christmas, uh, next week we'll be beginning a new series uh, that we're calling uh, the Songs of Christmas, where if you've ever read through the Gospel of Luke around the birth of Jesus, kind of that first Christmas retelling, um, over the first two chapters there's four different little songs or throughout church history they've called them canticles. And, uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take a week on each of those. So uh, Mary's song, her Magnificat, right, you know, when she's uh, gathering with Elizabeth. Uh, Zechariah's blessing over John the Baptist and with it also the birth of Jesus. The angels, Gloria, and then uh, Zechariah and, and uh, Anna, their, their uh, benediction kind of in the temple. We're going to go through each of these as a way of kind of setting up our hearts of moving towards uh, you know, our, our own engagement with, with Christmas season. So we begin that next week. Um, but today, we, as Pastor Lorenzo has said, we're concluding our fall series uh, in our series that we've been referring to as Wisdom's Way, Finding the Good Life in Proverbs. And, and one of the little secret things that I've had in the back of my kind of you know, pocket as we've been going through this series is hoping to helpfully help our community move from seeing what has been the common kind of way that we relate to the book of Proverbs. If you've been around the church for some time, Proverbs has largely been seen as kind of this random grab bag of good advice that kind of, depending on what you're going through, you just kind of stick your hand in the book of Proverbs and pull out, you know, it's like a big bag of fortune cookies. You pull out the one fortune that this is what I'm going to take with me. We've been trying to show that in reality, the book of Proverbs is actually this, this has this narrative story that it's telling, and it's inviting you into two ways of life. One way of life, which is that of wisdom, the way of trusting in the Lord with all that we are. And the book of Proverbs then details and teases that out in over 900 Proverbs, 900 different ways. And on the other side, what it's warning us from is the way of fallishness, the way of leaning on our own understanding, of choosing to dictate for ourselves good and bad, right and wrong, wise and foolish, and in the process, not leading towards the good life, but destruction and pain and conflict, Proverbs is trying to save us from that. It's all about how Proverbs is not simply saying that wisdom's way takes us to the good life, but that the good life is a life wisely lived. Not a book of random good advice. It's setting before us these two ways. And so as we're closing out the book of Proverbs, that's obviously a very quick summary of where we've been the fall. But as we've been in the book of Proverbs you could more or less say that we have found uh, the good life in wisdom's way. The book of Proverbs has set before us the good life in wisdom's way. My question is, as we close this series out, how do we stay on it? If the book of Proverbs is set before us, this is the way into the good life, the way into flourishing and abundance and fruitfulness. Okay, thanks, Proverbs. The question is now, we're closing up the book. How do I continue on this? If that's not your question, I know it's mine because here's the reality that I've experienced time and time again. My life is littered with moments of clarity, of understanding, of, of my eyes being wide open to seeing some reality in my life, some invitation, some moment or thing which has brought me to the point of something needs to change. 
And then as I move into the days and weeks and months and years later, I end up finding myself right back where I first started. Maybe you've had the same experience, whether it's something as small as your weekly little screen time notification that you get on your phone. Like some of us have just turned that off. I don't want to see that at the end of the week of like, how much time have I spent here on this stupid thing? Or maybe it comes at the end of the month of you looking at your monthly spending or, or this is what's coming up in, in a little over a month is our annual New Year resolutions where we all sit down and we think through who am I going to be in 2022? And so what do we do? We delete the apps, we create the budget, we buy the bike, we get the gym membership and over the course of the year with all the clarity, the course of the week, the course of the month, with all the clarity that we've had, we find ourselves then a week, a month, sometime later, right back where we started. I, this, is, I, this has been my experience. Maybe I'm alone in this, but this has been my experience of regularly having these moments of clarity, these moments of self-awareness and insight and a decision, a self-promise. Things are gonna change. Things are gonna get better. I'm gonna walk in this new way based off what I've seen. And the months, the weeks, the even days later, I find myself right back where I, want, where I started. Even to some of us that last week with Pastor Isaac's sermon on wisdom's way with words, that man, we heard this, this, this teaching and we go during the response time to the prayer team and we're confessing, you know, I'm prone to blabbering, I'm, I'm prone, prone to being impatient and even short-tempered. And, and so we have the conversation then with, with people on, on Sunday afternoon, we pray, we've heard the sermon, and then we sit in a Monday meeting and we find ourselves just doing the exact same thing of blabbering, being short-tempered, being impatient. This is, this is my experience. And so I, I have this question. Okay, Proverbs, where do we go from here? Anyone else with me? You guys are all tracking. Okay, good. You guys are here. I, I love masks. I also have no idea what anybody, this has been my experience for the past few months. So if you guys truly are with me then, you are trying to figure this out. This is the question. The reality of our lives, I mean, it just sets before us. Proverbs 26, 11 puts this graphically, this experience. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Uh, the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Or as this old hymn put it, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I, I, here's the thing. I don't want to be the dog returning back to its vomit. I, I don't want to wander. I want to find the escape from the cul-de-sac of my own folly, of this loop that feels endless of wisdom and insight and having the moment of clarity and making these decisions of deleting apps and, and saying no to this thing and yes to that. And then I find myself right, but I want to figure out how do I live within wisdom and stay on the way. The book of Proverbs gives us three ways. The first two, if you've been with us, we have already looked at. The first way that we stay on wisdom's way is the practice of reading and meditating on this book, of coming back to and reading and rereading, studying and receiving the words of Proverbs, allowing it to get into the, the mental faculties, to get into your little mind and heart and get you to think differently about the world. And so we've been doing this uh, through the kind of common practice of reading one chapter of Proverbs for each you know, calendar day, the you know, chapter one with the first day of the month, chapter three with the third, and, the, and onward from there. And so if that being one of the ways that Proverbs sets forward, my encouragement would be as we close out this series, for you to continue to study and come back to Proverbs. For some of you that's you know, on an ongoing basis, for some of you that this is just in your pocket, that as you're wanting to, to continue to develop and grow in your study of Scripture, to return back to reading a, a chapter a day, just reflecting on it. 
The second way that Proverbs says we can stay on the way of wisdom goes back to our teaching on wisdom's way with willpower. It is an invitation to study your habits. Because the way that you get into that cul-de-sac of, is uh, as much as the decisions that you make, as strong as those can be, they only get you so far. And it is your habits that you really need to pay attention to, to discern, as the book of Proverbs says. So we need to study scripture, and we also need to discern our habits. But Proverbs, as we're going to see today, actually says that personal reflection on scripture and even your willpower are not enough. Surprisingly, are not enough. There is a final piece that you and I need if we are to keep on to stay on wisdom's way. And so why don't we pray over our time together today and we'll kind of close up our series today with one last look on not just how do we find wisdom's way, but how do we stay on it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sunday. Uh, Thank you for the book of Proverbs and uh, the joy that this book has been for so many of us. The, The hard word at times, but the joy all the same. God, we pray that as we close out the series, you'd give us one more day, one more week of studying the scriptures and finding you speaking and inviting us into, God, the good life, a way shaped by wisdom, by trusting you. God, one that that provides us with the, the wisdom, the skill of living the good life. And so today, help us, help me, and there's one last uh, little stop here in the book uh, as we close it out. Would you speak? Would you minister? Would you meet us in the text? And we pray. Amen. Well, what is that third element that you and I need if we are to continue and to stay on wisdom's way? To put it simply, we need others. We need a community. If we are going to stay on wisdom's way, your own personal Bible time, and even you, you know, getting into your, you know, atomic habits and thinking through all of it, they are not going to be enough. You need others in your life. Proverbs 18 puts it this way, whoever isolates himself seeks their own desire. They break out against all sound judgment. And right along with it, Proverbs 15, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. If you and I want to walk on wisdom's way, we cannot do this alone. Success in the good life, as with anything, is found in the counsel and the advice of others. And it is the isolation as we separate ourselves from others that that's actually what leads to foolishness. It's what leads to us just breaking out against all sound judgment. And and this word is true in its ancient context, the deep need for community. But I would argue we especially, you and I especially need to hear this because we are children of our own culture. Specifically, that we have grown up and been shaped and formed by the idealization of radical individualism. Uh-oh, Ryan's talking about individualism again. If you've been a collective, you know that this is, we regularly return to this, but here we are again. Because here's the thing, you and I have been shaped and grown up in a worldview that the good life is found by exclusively looking inward to ourselves. The wisdom of this day is for us to lean on our own understanding and from that craft and create a good life. That is the wisdom of our day, is that everything that you want for a successful, good life of abundance and fruitfulness and influence is found within. And the invitation for you is to lean on that. Now, we have been shaped by a handful of different places, but but one of the things that connects immediately to our own backyard is is what's been coined as the founder's myth. This is in the mythology of what it means to be an American, is we have these origin stories behind all of the super brands of our day. And all of this founder's myth is rooted in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, 
where what she set forward, what they set forward was that, um, that the world has been built and crafted by the founders. And the founders are those who broke out against the community. And that the world is made and shaped and taken into new places by the founders who separate themselves from the people who are just looking to drag them down. And this has shaped then Silicon Valley and with it our own backyard, Silicon Beach, when we then are given these founders' myths around people like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, where the founders' myth is these mortal men, these individuals, enter into the garage alone and they emerge with something ready to change the world. This story goes back further beyond all of this to our own American mythos with the rugged individualism of the mavericks on the range, those cowboys who only depended on themselves and they didn't need anyone else. This is, you know, personified in, of all people, John Wayne. The problem with this story is that they are in its very nature a myth. Google, when it entered into its garage stage, already had $2 million in startup. Steve Jobs going into the garage and coming out with the Apple computers has been completely disproven by his longtime partner, Steve Wozniak, or, uh, Wozniak that that is not what happened. This, this one individual going into the garage, that never happened. It was a group of people working with him. And even the cowboys of the West, as much as we may love our Western movies, the history is it. They were not these lone, rugged individuals. They were all employees of these mega corporations back East. But all the same, these myths, these stories now shape our reality in the way that we think about how we find the good life. We think if you want to be successful, you want to find a life worth living and a good life, then you need to cast off the constraints of community and being dragged down by others and you need to pave your own way over and against what the community may hold you to. This shows its way in every single Disney princess movie. I am a father of a four-year-old girl and so this is I am just currently watching over and over again. These narratives, which are these revealing stories of what we believe as a culture, Disney princesses emerge out of the, the, what, the culture of their day. And this is why we all look back now on the earliest Disney princess movies, and it's kind of a little bit cringy. And the question is, is what is the cringeness that's happening over our Disney princesses that are beginning to us right now? And all of them revolve around radical individualism. It is Elsa, it is Moana, these individuals who break out against community and those constraints to be free with no rules, just right, just how I want to be, and that that is the salvation that works out the whole story. All of our Disney princess stories are those shaking off the constraints of community for the sake of self-pursuit. And we are being shaped by these stories. And our children are. And this is why we have conversations in my house how Elsa is probably more like the villain of this story than the hero. I don't have that. Not yet. We will one day. (laughs) But the whole point is we are being shaped in this sort of story, in this kind of framework where we think that the good life, a wise life, is found by looking inward as opposed to others. And Proverbs wants to serve as an ancient wake-up to call to us. The garage of transformation, the place that you go and emerge ready to change the world, is not in the place of the absence of community. The garage is community itself. That is, when you, immer- when you move deeply into community, when you, that is the garage where you emerge as someone different, and not just by yourself, but a community emerges on the other side. The good life Staying on wisdom's way is not found by you casting off community, but by you entering into it. But see, the thing is, it's not simply enough to have community. We actually need to be really discerning about the kind of people we surround ourselves with. As Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 
You could put this simply, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Your way of life, of wisdom or folly, is not simply made up in the decisions that you make, but in the people that you surround yourselves with. And so we need to discern time and time again, who are those people? Not just discern my own way, but the way of the people that I most closely associate with. The greatest stopping point for some of us in our journey of wisdom and moving in that is that we've just surrounded ourselves with idiots, with really foolish people who are, who are going in a completely different direction in a kind of life that if you actually take the time to discern their way, you'd be able to clarify and see that's not the sort of life that I want to live. Proverbs is saying you, you, you need to be discerning not just of your own way, but the way of the people that you surround yourself with, those closest to you. And so if we do want to walk on wisdom's way, we have these two things that we have to cast off. One of those is this arrogant isolation, which thinks radical individualism, the good life is found within. And the other is food, like really considering who we call friend, really considering and discerning the way of those that we make ourselves closest to. And Proverbs would associate or would invite us to enter into a community of, of companions, a community of people committed to wisdom's way that we walk on this together. And that that way of wisdom that that community walks is one that happens through that, the community's words. As Pastor Isaac pointed us to last week in Proverbs chapter 18, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Last week, Pastor Isaac preached an incredible teaching looking at the death that's in the power of the tongue, looking at cynicism, the traps of lying and babbling and, and gossip. And today, what we're going to be looking at is not the, the fruit of death in the tongue or the power of death, but the power of life in the tongue. Because as we're seeing, this is not, it's not simply what the words that you say. This is not some kind of manifestation, kind of like neo-pagan nonsense. But what this is, is the words that you speak to others have the power of life or death. And the community of wisdom is the one that harnesses that power to guide one another deeper into the way of wisdom, the good life. And so today is the conclusion of the book. We're going to be looking at and, and kind of bringing these together. Not just how do we stay on the way of wisdom, but then what does it mean for us to use our words for life and to guide one another, to guide our community deeper on wisdom's way. Proverbs has a lot to say on this, but I think we can distill it into two ways with our words. And the first is that wisdom's way is walked not just as a community, but as a community of celebration. A community of celebration. Proverbs 16, verse 24 says, Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious words in the Hebrew that Proverbs was written in, you can translate this as, as kind words, as good words, as words which bring delight, that communicate favor and support, confidence, honorable, honoring words, or as we could just simply translate it, words of encouragement and celebration. When you and I are gifted with, with encouragement, when you and I have experienced that moment of someone looking us in the eyes and celebrating us, We've all felt the power of life in this story, the sweetness of the honeycomb in those words. What we find is when we're encouraged, when others celebrate us, it brings this life, this revitalization. That we experience the power of those words in that moment. And the thing is, is if we're going to continue on wisdom's way together to move deeper into this, we need that sweetness. We need that, that, that health to the body because wisdom's way is no walk in the park. 
Wisdom's way is not easy, easy, easy but it is quite difficult. And, and our days and lives moving, trying to stick to wisdom's way, over time will quench our strength. It will zap and tap our willpower, and it at times will even add sourness to our lives. And that is precisely when our willpower gets tapped in foolishness. The easier way of being foolish becomes so, so tempting. Is it even worth it for all of the exhaustion and pain and difficulty and sourness that walking in wisdom has brought me? Is it even worth it? And that is when foolishness is most attractive. And that's why what we need in those moments are gracious words, celebration, where we are within a community where others are putting their arms around us and speaking words that are like gas in our tank that allow us to carry on amid the difficulties of our lives to stick to wisdom's way in the midst of this. Like I said a moment ago, I'm currently uh, the father of a, currently, she's gonna be five in a few weeks, but I'm currently the parent of a little four-year-old. And man, parenting is hard work. Nobody told me this. Everybody told you this. I, didn't, I did not listen enough. But here's the thing, in the midst of those difficulties and challenging, and man, the, 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 the lack of health to my body, this, like the difficulty that it brings, I will tell you what, man, this past week, my, my daughter has regularly been encouraging me with the new reality that in her eyes, daddy is the best snuggler. And man, I, you hear that, you will fight a bear for that girl. Or, or more realistically, like it, it, it is the gas in the tank to keep going in the difficult work of, of, of just parenting. Hearing that kind of, that simple thing of daddy's the best snuggler. And man, all right. Like I normally like, avoid, like bat, getting ready for bed with a four and a one-year-old is impossible. But I look forward to that most now. Because that means like snuggled, her favorite, apparently favorite part of the day and favorite time with dad is coming up. And, and so even apart from parenting is like, this is what I'm saying is when we enter into these difficult seasons, the thing that we need most is a community of people who look at us and encourage us right where we are in the midst of what we're going through. You see, to keep on wisdom's way, we need a church community that is more than simply just nice acquaintances. We need fellow travelers on the journey of wisdom who are putting their arms around us regularly and celebrating the simple but often hard-fought steps. But here is why this connects is that you need not just celebration. This exists within a community. Celebration, true celebration requires community. Encouragement requires you being known and knowing others. You sharing your life and, and others sharing their lives and their emotions and their feelings and their conflicts and their difficulty, their decisions with each other. That's the context where encouragement and celebration happens. Anybody can walk on the street and give you a high five. But there's a something different when someone who knows everything that I'm going through has able to look at me in the face, is able to say with all the honesty of knowing exactly where I am, man, you're you're doing a great job. It's going to be okay. I, I wondered this week if the prominence of, of our rise and kind of, you know, every single social media post, not every single, but most, there's this prominence in the rise of, of not just self-care, uh, but specifically self-care that comes in the form of self-talk, of, of you speaking these, these, um, these words of affirmation over yourself, and it's becoming hugely popular, specifically within our kind of the past couple of years. So the whole question is, where is this coming from and why? And so just I begin to kind of theorize that what's this coming from is we have such a prominence of encouraging and celebrating ourselves because we have the deep absence of communities that are doing that for us. And so because we don't have that, 
we are constantly looking out for uh, the, the celebration and the encouragement of how do we work that within our others, within ourselves. And, and even this is, it's a, it's a damning indictment against radical individualism. That the whole point is we were given the Elsa story. We were given the John Wayne, the Steve Jobs story of look within yourself, depend on yourself to bring out the good life. And then what ends up happening is we don't have a community that actually knows us because we're locked away in the garage away from everyone else. And so then the only thing that we can do is look at our phones and give affirmations of encouragement to ourselves. And even my, my theorizing on this wasn't, was actually then confirmed as a, a couple different of these um, influencers who normally kind of speak in this talk begin to kind of making a change. And so uh, one of them was actually Melissa Fisher, who's a part of our church that she reposted. One of them is um, a woman by the name of uh, uh, Nikita Valerio. She said, uh, shouting self-care at people who actually need community care is how we fail people. Notice that what she says here is the greater need for your life is not self-care, but a community that cares for you. Uh, Mariam Kaba, she's an author and activist. She says, I don't believe in self-care. I believe in collective care. Hey, that's our name. And thinking more about how to help each other. What you need is not speaking aphorisms and promises and celebrations and encouragements over yourself. You need others who do that for you. Because we're created as humans for relationship. So the question is, though, all right, that sounds great, Ryan. How do I find a community like that? Are you offering me, you know, collective to be that community? No, I'm not. You don't find a community like this. You can find a subscription service like this. You can find a product like this, but in order for it to be a community, it requires that you become a contributing member of it. If you want a community of encouragement, as Jesus would say, do to others as you'd have them do unto you. Be an encourager. Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul writes it this way, outdo one another in showing honor. You know, this is the only place in all of scripture that we are told to compete with each other. And what is it in? honoring, celebrating, and encouraging one another. So let's get really, really practical. Okay, Ryan, I want to be a contributing member of Collective Becoming a Community of Encouragement. Okay, how, how do I do that? How do I become an encourager, a celebrator? Now, the thing is, in its essence, encouragement and celebration is an art, not a science. But I, I, think, I think I've identified five elements of a community of celebration, just to set before us briefly. Uh, five, and uh, if there's a sixth, seventh, or tenth, uh, you feel free to let me know. But I think I've got it down to these five. The first, to be a community of celebration, it begins with adoration, specifically in our words. And what I mean by adoration is, is specifically those moments when we have someone who knows us and is with us and committed to us and knows us for all of our mess and stupid and continues to say, I love you and I respect you, I'm with you, I'm on your side. So many of us, man, I, I, I can't turn this into a whole other sermon. Adoration, simply one of those elements is for us to consider, how can I on a regular basis, if I want to encourage people, let communicate my emotions that I feel for them? To not keep that hidden love, but to have that, man, I, I genuinely, man, I know that right now work has been so stressful for you. You've had hard decisions. We've been talking about this at Discipleship Group. And man, I, I just want you to know, I, I respect the goodness out of you. Like, I just see you committing to this hard season, and you're showing up, and you're continuing to be there. 
Or man, I, I, I know that you've been working through your, your current job and what you've been working through and it led to hard decisions and you, you stepped away. You left your job because you saw that it was not leading into wisdom. And man, I, I respect you. I just want to take a moment and honor you for you making the hard decisions right now. In the midst of your grief, you're continuing to show up and be faithful to what the Spirit is doing right now. And I just, man, I love you and it's so encouraging to see that. I, I, I adore you. The first is just simply some of us is is we've never had a community where people genuinely talk that way about us. Maybe when they were drunk. I love you, man. But I'm saying in all sobriety, I love you and I'm on your side. The second form of the way that we can become a community of, of, uh, of celebration is through our attention. In an age of distraction, one of the greatest gifts that we can give each other is paying close attention in conversation giving our full attention to another person. It's, it's a hot commodity right now. You don't get that anywhere. And so when we're at, you know, discipleship group or when we're here on Sundays, to have a full attention on the other is one of the ways that we can express that. And then utilizing that as the space in which we can then encourage in little things that normally would have been lost. We can give our adoration, our attention. The next is our applause. And this is simply what we think about when we think about uh, celebration is just being able to celebrate, man, the hard-won decisions that you've made. You're walking in wisdom. Man, I know that you've been pursuing sobriety and you've been showing up with AA. You've been bringing other fam- like friends in on the conversation as you've been working through that. And so, man, we just, we, I genuinely just want to say I, I, you're doing an incredible job. Man, I know that you're like, trying to show up. You've started serving. You've never served within the church before, and this has been hard for you of like, you just, and you've been serving on a regular basis. I, do you see, this is just, it's a, giving applause, celebrating and encouraging one another. And then the final, for those of us who words of affirmation isn't our primary love language, is these acts of celebration. This can come in the form of, I mean, this isn't necessarily COVID-friendly, but like hugs and like, there is something to be said where if you're like, primary love language is touch, that like, there is something to be said for a deep hug, and it's like, I'm on your side. Like, I'm with you right now. Of us giving time, of serving one another, giving, hey, I, I know you've been going through a hard season, and you guys have been showing up, and you guys, you guys have been there for us, and so we just wanted to make dinner for you guys, just to celebrate you. Like, just a, a little dinner in, in your honor. And then even gifts, like little things, just little, you know, hey, I, I, was, I was thinking of you, and I was thinking of what you're going, I got you this, this, this thing. And then finally, the fifth one is attendance, which sounds really weird in the midst of all of this. But I'm not crazy. This comes from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. Notice this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's celebration, encouragement language there. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Do you see that what, what, what you have here is these two little slices of encouragement, and then you have this attendance sandwich that's right here in the middle. That for somehow the, the author of Hebrews sees one of the primary avenues of encouragement in the life of the church is, is what? Is the regular gathering of the local church community. What's happening right here and right now? And so that would be one of those other things is, man, if I'm looking to, be a, to create a community and be a part of a community of encouragement, what would it look like for me to see the Sunday, the weekly gathering, the service of the church as this kind of encouragement hotspot in the life of our community? Where I arrive not just simply to receive encouragement from others, but I, on my way there, am praying and asking God, how can I help give encouragement and to celebrate others? 
This isn't one, one pastor, he, he talked about, I've been trying to practice this on a regular basis, is on the way to church, him just praying and asking God, who can I, who can I encourage today? Who am I supposed to encourage today? Who's one person, when I walk in the door while I'm here today, who can I encourage? What would it look like to have us shape our primary understanding of the Sunday gathering away from something that I arrive at to receive, and then I don't need to show up if I feel good that week, or I don't really need anything, rather to a posture of, of someone who I'm arriving and I'm here to look for how I can encourage. And part of that encouragement is me simply being in the room. I, I know that for me, half of the encouragement that, that fills me up and moves me into the week is oftentimes during our worship time is just seeing others worshiping Jesus with me. That reminder that I'm not alone in this. You see, wisdom and the good life with our attendance, our adoration, our attention, our applause, these acts, all of this is, is this is what it means for community to keep and hold one another to the good life that keeps us from, from being tempted into foolishness because of just how exhausting it gets when we've got somebody cheering us on. The good life is a team sport. And it is ones that we are, we are playing the field while we got pom-poms in hands and we are cheering one another on. This is what we do. As Paul said in Romans, we're outdoing one another in cheerleading and encouraging and celebrating each other onward. So that's the first way. The first way that we can keep ourselves on the wisdom's way is we become a community of celebration. The second is, is prompted by this question. If, if celebration helps keep us on wisdom's way, but what about those times when we do, in fact, still wander off into foolishness? What then? See, what we need is... Not a community less than celebration, but one more. We need, we need to walk in wisdom's way as a community of correction. Proverbs chapter 27 says this, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from their earnest counsel. Iron sharpens iron, and, and one man, one person sharpens another. Part of the sweetness of having a community on wisdom's way is not just by their celebration of you, but them loving you enough to at times rebuke, to provide earnest counsel. The, the language there of an earnest counsel is that deep from the, it's literally the word for soul, soul counsel. Them not holding anything back, but opening up what they true, all the honesty of what they have about you and your situation and where they're at. That is the sweetness of friendship. Someone who is willing to enter into the iron sharpening conflict and discomfort for your sake. See, what surprises us is what Proverbs 27 says is that actually your enemy are those people who seem to be kissing all the time. We have a word for this. Those always affirmers, those, the, the, the sycophants, the, the yes men, those who are always on your side, always applauding your decisions, even in the midst of disagreeing with you, they don't want to bring conflict to the relationship. Those are your enemies, actually, because they will applaud you as you descend into regret and foolishness. You see, what you need is a community that does more than just celebrate, we need one that willingly corrects us and sees us and is paying attention and out of their attention and knowing and seeing at times will bring a hard word for us. But in order for that community to actually exist, we just as much need a posture of receptivity to that correction. In fact, it's one of the primary indicators for your life if you are on wisdom's way or follies is how do you receive correction Proverbs 10, verse 17 says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. They are on wisdom's way. 
But he who rejects reproof or rebuke or correction, they not just lead themselves astray, they drag others with them. They lead others astray. Proverbs 17.10 says, Rebuke goes deeper into the person of understanding than a hundred punches into a fool. Some people just don't learn, and it takes punch after punch. The wise are those who, with one conversation, are able to see, to acknowledge, and then humbly move forward in that correction. And so this is it. Correction requires our community, not just of celebration, but, but it requires community of us knowing and being known. Like I said, anybody on the street can give you a high five, and anybody on the street can just rebuke you. You know, you're going to hell or whatever. You have these people out there, these street preachers. Anybody can do that. What makes a community correction different is that I'm receiving this from someone who knows me, who loves me, who is with me, who knows my feelings and my struggles and my difficulties, and in the midst of all of that, enters into the discomfort to set before us correction. Now, Pastor Ryan, I've been wearing Pastor Ryan hat all morning, but to keep that on and snug it tightly on, This is an area, collective church, guys, gals, people, we are, you guys are incredible at celebration. What I've just talked about is more than anything, let's continue in that way. This is the area that our community has to grow in. We are so slow to correction. Now, some of this may be from a misinformed understanding where it's solely the pastor's job to correct. Some of this may be that we're just walking in the individualism of, hey, they're in their garage and I'm in mine and we're both just going to the same church together. If that's the way that they interpret whatever thing, then that's, that must be cool for them, cool for me. It may be some of those, but I believe that most often that the absence of correction within our community is our good desire to not be an abusive community. Because all of us have heard horror stories of, of religious communities where, where people berate others into some form of obedience and, and this church abuse. We have a word for this. We don't want to be that. But in the practice of trying not to do that, we actually bring out a, another type of abuse, which is abandonment. We're not caring for one another, not bringing correction. See, the abusive parent is just as much the person who actively harms their child as the one who isn't giving attentive care in the midst of their children being children (laughs) and learning. And collective, if we are going to continue on wisdom's way, I am not worried about us being under-encouraged and under-celebrated. My concern is us giving a blind eye to one another's sin and foolishness for the sake of keeping unity and keeping the relationship. And so we don't want to be an abusive community. And so my, I wanted to set before us, Collective, just some practical ways how we can walk in this. Okay, I want to be able to do that. I, I'm with you, Ryan. I, I desire that for myself, and I want to be able to offer that. I don't want to be an abusive community, though. How can I do this well? On a regular basis here at our church, I teach a preparing for marriage class with little, you know, you know, wide-eyed and mystified couples who are all excited to get married, and I basically just break them into, like, are you sure, over the course of 10 weeks. And in the third week, one of the things that we talk about is um, pulling from uh, Dr. John Gottman, a PhD, uh, who does a lot of writing on marriages and specifically how marriages and how in, uh, married couples do conflict. What he says is healthy marriages are not the absence of conflict, but the presence of healthy conflict. To steal from him, we could say that healthy churches are not those that have the absence of conflict, but those that have the presence of healthy conflict. 
And so what he does, though, in talking about conflict is John Gottman identifies what he calls the four horsemen uh, or the four destroyers of marriages in conflict. He says, if you got these four, this is where you've got a marriage that is not headed anywhere good very, very quickly. And as I was thinking of this week, it just came to mind that really you can just steal his stuff and adapt that and say that these are the four destroyers of not just marriages, but communities in the midst of their correction. The first two are about the one that's bringing the correction. The next two are about those that are receiving it. So here we are. We're talking about the church correction. This is also free marriage counseling. So uh, take this as you will. Uh, One of the first destroyers of conflict, both in marriages and in the correction of the church, is he identifies as criticism. Criticism, it leans itself towards an overgeneralization of looking at the person that we're bringing correction to and saying, you always or you never. It also leads towards that criticism is instead of being motivated in the context of the relationship of saying, hey, I have noticed or I have seen, it always and most often begins with, with you, you, you. So you see, criticism is one of these first ways that you can see that's a fast track towards a breakdown in conflict and in correction within our church community. What would it look like to replace this with, to go back to Pastor Isaac, a curiosity when we bring, that our correction is not motivated by, I think I've got it all figured out, and I'm going to come in here and berate you into obedience, but a simple, hey, I've got the Bible open, but I'm coming with curiosity. I'm coming with questions asked. To bring in the midst of that correction, just that question of saying, hey, hey, I was hurt when you said or when you did this. You see the difference between that and saying, you hurt me when you did this, is it invites us into a conversation of why I was hurt and what your responsibility and my responsibility was in that as opposed to a simple criticism. It allows for a conversation to happen there. Or to say, instead of, uh, uh, you know, you, you are you know, addicted or you are greedy or something like that, to simply say, hey, I'm, I'm concerned with this pattern that I've noticed in conversations with you or that I've noticed in, you, in the way that you talk to your spouse or the way that you talk about your, your work. And like, what's going, I, I'm, you see that I'm concerned. This is starting with a posture of curiosity, of asking questions. Or to simply say, hey, I'm, I'm confused about this area of your life. You and I, were part of the same church. We seem to be thinking the same way about a lot of these things. But there's this area of your life that I'm just confused. And I, I, I want to be able to be on your side. And I, I want to walk together. But I, just, I have questions about this. And maybe you've thought through this. Or maybe, you see, even if they absolutely know that they're in sin about this issue, you have set that conversation off in a completely different place and way. As Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, that the purpose in a person's heart is like this deep well of of water. And the wise person is the one who uh, draws it out slowly. They they think about, you know, lowering the bucket down into the well, the slow working it down and bringing it up. And when we move from criticism to curiosity, it is that practice of taking our time and slowly bringing up what's the purpose behind this, this area in their life that I'm bringing correction. The second way that we can move into a destroyer of our community and our correction is not just criticism, but contempt. Contempt is when we, our our language bringing correction is largely built around insulting them and belittling the other person and even trying to berate them into obedience. We set aside and almost forget the goodness of the person sitting aside from us like the, the, the relationship in the community that we have, and we motivate ourselves largely by this kind of berating them and beating them into some kind of submission. This, and this may, to some of you may sound like, okay, easy. This is, this is a legitimate thing that happens in, in religious communities. And so for us, it's simply, okay, 
contempt. I, what I need to do is, is um, well, Proverbs 11, uh, 12 backs, backs me up here. It says, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. If you think that berating others into obedience and what people need to hear is this like vindicative, hard, mean word in order to get them to follow Jesus, Proverbs says you're lacking wisdom. That's not how this thing works. What we need to replace this with is our correction being motivated not by contempt but by love. That as we're bringing correction, we remember who we're with and why we're here. It is them and my commitment to them and who they are and the story that I get to be a part of and I'm committed and for you. And so out of that connection and commitment to you, hey, I've got some questions that I want to bring before you. So those two are for those that are bringing the correction, but what about those who are receiving it? How can there be a breakdown in the community? The first is by being defensive. That when others bring correction to us, we deny responsibility. We excuse what we've done. We, we play this game of negative mind reading where we're trying to assume that what they're motivated by is not actually their love for me, but actually some kind of manipulation scheme of what they're playing. We do negative mind reading. We cross-complain that when they bring correction, we immediately turn it back into something that they've done. We gaslight. That never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. We outright lie. Or we give half apologies, where instead of when they say, hey, I was hurt by this, we don't say, I'm sorry that I. We say, oh, I'm sorry that you were hurt by that. Uh, we, we make the responsibility for the hurt on them as opposed for the things that we said or the words that we had. See, this is a defensive posture that, it, that we cannot receive the correction, or we receive it to the, um, the levels in which we want to. On the other side of that is a humility. That when others bring correction, we receive it, we set ourselves down, we don't defend, we don't cross-complain, we don't get into maybe, and here's the thing is, guess what? People are not going to correct you perfectly every single time. And your responsibility for receiving the correction is not codependent on whether or not they bring it the best way. Part of being a person of wisdom is being able to set aside, even in the midst of maybe they were a little stronger than they should have been, or maybe they didn't say it at the exact right time, and that's a conversation to be had at another time. The main thing for right now is what's the correction that they're bringing? What's my responsibility and culpability here? Part of defensiveness is by saying, oh, the way that you brought it to me wasn't the best way, so I now I get off scot-free and I don't have to own up for where I'm doing. We need to replace this with a humility, a willingness to receive and to change, to apologize fully. As Proverbs 11 verse 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble there is wisdom. Pride and arrogance, a defense of yourself and your image and your goodness and your whatever it may be, your safety, your power, whatever it may be that keeps you from owning and being humble to receive correction. Proverbs says that is a fast track to downfall. Humbly being able to lay those aside, to change, to grow, to apologize is how we grow. And then the final uh, way that we can break down community in correction, if we're receiving it, is through what's called stonewalling. And this is where not that we're getting defensive or we're lying or gaslighting, is that we just shut down. We literally shut down. John Gottman in his study found that 85% of stonewallers are men. That has just as much implications for our marriages as for our community. <laughs> is when, when 85%, so women do this as well, but... When stonewalling happens is in the midst of the correction and the conflict for the sake of not wanting to make it become more than it needs to be or just the fact that we've given up. We, don't, we just shut down. We're not present to the conversation. We're not receptive. 
we disengage. And then when, we're, when they're asking, where are you? It's, I don't want to make things worse. And Gottman acknowledges that this is, this is the absence of it, a shutting down. And a lot of this is then motivated out of the fact that we just, we hate the correction that we're receiving. We so deeply hate it. And, we, and, we're, and this is where he says, you know, you're on a fast track to this marriage or this community falling apart. Is we, 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 we are at the same time filled with so much apathy for the relationship, but also hatred for it. We don't have enough emotion to speak up, but we also don't have enough. We... And so to be a community that does correction well, we need to replace our stonewalling with receptivity. Like, along with our humility, a receptivity to receive the words of others, the hard words that are set before us. As Proverbs 12 verse 1 says, whoever, um, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> it just puts it simply there. If you think about like what just was said here, whoever loves discipline, the hard reality of you getting discipline and correction, whoever loves that, they love knowledge. They are the per- you love knowledge. But the person who skirts responsibility, skirts re- discipline, skirts the hard conversations and rebuke, stonewalls against it, gaslights and lies their way out of it, is st- stupid. And so here's the thing, this is, these are, if we can avoid these and lean into these four, I think this is a very easy and simple way for us to avoid many of the pitfalls of becoming a community that does correction in an abusive way. But then there, there is also the result then, that there are two possible things that can happen on the other side of that correction. The first is they can receive it, and the second is they can reject it. What then? If they receive the correction, Proverbs 17.9 says, whoever covers an offense, that is forgives, seeks love. But the one who repeats that offense again separates close friends. The repeating is not that the other person goes and does it again. That is part of it. But in the Hebrew, what's going on here is the person who, who doesn't simply forgive and, and, and gives the, the forgiveness that's found in the gospel over to the other, but they continue to bring that thing up. That's what separates the relationship. And so part is, is if they receive the correction, if they apologize, you forgive and sleeping dogs now lie. As Proverbs, uh, Psalm 103 says, as God separates our sin from the east from the west, that we in some way do our best to give that to one another as well. The hard reality is what if they reject the correction? Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 helps us a bit here. Jesus says that if you go to them and you're doing your best to come with curiosity and love and all the same, they reject it. Jesus says, go and bring one or two more people with you who know them, specifically not so that you can gang up, but those one or two other people can serve as judges to make sure that you're not being overly like, you know, religious and legalistic, but also to hold them and to join in the conversation. And if they, at the end of that conversation, they go, no, you know what? In this case, Ryan or whoever, you're right in bringing this correction. I mean, you've got to do something. And that person still says no. Then at that point, you then go and bring in the pastors who then we enter into and we have the hard conversation again where then if they reject that tier, then what goes on from there, what's sometimes called church uh, a discipline, is, is simply that the church community now through the pastors implements that person's rejection of community. Church discipline is never, ever, ever pastors kicking people out of church. It is pastors making a reality what that person has already done with their lives. They've rejected the community. They've rejected the correction. And so all of this is done 
I mean, and Jesus is just pulling from Proverbs 22.10. It's not just Jesus and Paul. It's even in Proverbs. It says, drive out a scoffer. That is the person who is arrogant, the one who rejects correction from their community, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. So the hard thing is done is, is this decision gets made, that if there's correction and it's received, then we move forward in forgiveness and all of that. If they continue to be, the, the scoffer is what Proverbs call them, there comes a hard point where it's like, what what, what, are you, what are you doing in this community then? If we're all committed to wisdom's way and you so clearly are not, then, then what is your relationship here and why do you want to be a part of this thing? And at some level, we're helping you make a decision based off the decision that you've already made. And all of this is done, hopefully, for the benefit of both parties, that the community is now able to move without the strife and the conflict and the abuse further into wisdom's way, and it hopefully serves as a wake-up call for the individual who's continued rejecting that correction. So there we go. So the whole point, though, is so many of us, I think we hold back from correction because we don't want to do it wrong or we've seen it done wrong, and so we never even take it up. But the reality is, is that more churches have fallen apart and, and, and gone into really unhealthy territory by the absence of correction than the presence of bad correction or abusive correction. And so we need to be aware of both of those angles well and go not, what is it, then we don't correct, what does it mean to do this in a healthy way? That would be the invitation here. And so how do we avoid the four destroyers to begin with? It all comes down to math. John Gottman and his team found that amazingly, it all comes down to a simple mathematical formula of how a community avoids the four destroyers and continues in a healthy way. And it all comes down to a five to one ratio. For every one negative hard conversation, you have five good ones. If you've got that, you've got a healthy marriage. You've got a healthy church community. And so this is why us being, to go back to celebration, being a community of celebration helps prevent us from needing correction to begin with. And then it also provides the basis for our trust when correction becomes necessary. So wisdom's way. Here we go. Summarizing and closing. Today we're trying to close out Wisdom's Way as a series and also Wisdom's Way with words. But to summarize all of this, Wisdom's Way is walked as a community of celebration and correction. This is the main framework, or to take it a bit deeper as we wind down. Wisdom's Way is walked as a gospel-made family. You see, if you've been around Collective for any extended amount of time, you've heard this, that this serves as one of the core convictions of our church, and this is what separates the local church from any other community. You can find some form of a community of of celebration and correction in your gym or, or in an AA meeting, but what separates the church is that we have been built around not physical fitness or sobriety, as good as those are, but around the deeper story, the story of humanity of you and me. The humanity has been chosen and created by God to partner with him in creating a good life, a good world, as they trust in him and walk on wisdom's way. This is what Genesis chapter 1 means when it says that we're created in the image of God. The reality is is that through our foolish decisions that we have not adequately partnered with God, we have distrusted him, we have leaned on our own understanding, we have chosen individualism and our foolish friends, and we have left nothing but the fallout of pain and injustice and brokenness and death on the other side of those things. What we as a community gather around is that in this story, God himself has entered into humanity's story. This is what Christmas is all about in the incarnation, that God has become human in Jesus Christ, to not just fulfill, but to restart that human program and plan. 
you and I as image bearers walking in wisdom's way and bringing a world of flourishing and abundance and goodness. And so we saw this in Jesus' life and in his teachings where we saw what wisdom's way looked like fulfilled in his death on the cross, the, the death of our old humanity and our foolishness and the death that it brings was put to death. In his resurrection of Easter Sunday when Jesus emerged from the grave, that we found this new humanity, this new life, this new family emerging that no longer walks in the foolishness of our you know, built-in habits, but now through the resurrection has new life at work in them. And more simply than just forgiveness for our foolishness or even hope for eternal life, the gospel creates a new humanity, a new family of image bearers regaining what it means to be human. This image of God being shaped and formed into a people who are walking in the wisdom that is God's own wisdom as they trust in him and trust in Jesus as Savior and as King, that not just looking to him, he begins to shape and fashion us as wise people. Over the course of this series, I've had in the top left corner of my desktop on my computer the little sticky zap where you have little reminders of go and get this or do that. And I've had at the top left corner for this whole series a passage from Colossians chapter 1 that I think is a fitting end to bring all this together. Um, Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, To the church, God chose to make known how great among the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, Christ in y'all, it's plural, the hope of glory. Him, that is Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone, notice the correction and celebration with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, the energy of Jesus that he's powerfully working within me. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about church, it is not a building, it is not an event, but it is a community, it is a family, it is those that have y'all in Christ stamped over them and working out within them. And so this is what unites us as a community of celebration and correction, as a family of people who have been saved and shaped as we trust in Jesus and are now committing to bringing out that expression of Christ in you for one another of seeing and celebrating, of correcting and drawing that out over each other. And so this fall, our time in the book of Proverbs, I've been trying hopefully to show that Proverbs is, is quite more than a grab bag of random good advice and practical help. That as we've been in the book of Proverbs, that my hope and prayer is that you've seen that it's Jesus we've proclaimed amid our folly and that with all wisdom, we've been hopefully bringing out wisdom's way in you, which is Christ in y'all, as Paul says that this book has brought about both warning and teaching as we've gone through these different aspects and invitations. All of this with the goal of further shaking off our individualism and immaturity and replacing it with a deeper unity and maturity, or as Paul writes, that we might present each and every one of us as mature in Christ. And so my aim of Proverbs, this is the aim with everything that we do as a church and is going to be into the future as we kick off our next series next week is this invitation for you and I each week and again today to take that next step, whether our first or our thousandth on wisdom's way. And so as we move into a time of response, we're gonna be asking what does that mean, not just for me, but for we. Let's pray.